0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The book is titled "Res Rules, R-E-Z Rules, My Indictment of Canada's and America's Systemic Racism Against Indigenous People. The book is by Chief Clarence Louis, Chief of the Osoyoos Indian Band in the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia Chief Louie was first elected in 1984. He was in his twenties. He's been elected 19 more times consecutively. The Osoyoos Indian Band is also known as the Miracle in the Desert, as the First Nation changed from struggling with poverty into becoming an economic powerhouse. Chief Louis believes economic and business independence is key to self-sufficiency, reconciliation, and justice for First Nations people. Also writes about systemic racism against Indigenous people. And uh, Chief Louis will be in Toronto next Tuesday for a book signing. We'll tell you more about that as we go through the segment. Now, I had an opportunity, and I actually wanted to avail myself of that opportunity to call the chief last Thursday evening Not scheduled, because I've been reading his book, and I've read it cover to cover. It is an amazing book. It's about um, life, about principled life, about success, about being driven, about staying on focus, and about doing things correctly. Chief Louis, thank you very much for coming on the program. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to talk to you again, and I just felt compelled to call you because your book is so... Uh, powerful, and motivating. And I, I want to start with this. Um, the Soyuz Indian Band has been called the miracle in the desert. You have more jobs than people. Great commercial success. And you detail the successes uh, internationally. But it took a letter from a grade four girl named Sienna, which contained five questions to persuade you it was time to write your book, as Rules. What was it about that little
1: girl that connected with you? Well, I've gotten those type of requests before, I mean, many years ago. So I've gotten those type of requests before. But now that I'm in my 60s, um, maybe at the time I was 59, I I decided, you know, I'm in my last quarter. And, um, you know, it's now or never. And I've been asked to write a book for at least a decade or more. Because of all my travels throughout North America and speaking on First Nation economic development and um, reconciliation, even before that word was even brought up. And then when I got back from that, uh, those uh, questions from that little girl that I haven't had a chance to meet yet, I just decided, you know, I, I, I'd write them in a lot more detail than a grade three or four student would need. I shared them with my, my staff here, council members and my daughter and my my kids. And it was my daughter that also said, Dad, you should write a book. So that was the uh, last uh, motivation that I needed came from my daughter.
0: So as I'm reading your book, I keep going back to the reason for you writing it, this little girl. And you're right, you have distrust and anger and disappointment for Canada and the United States, but you still love both nations, and you point out that First Nations have been generationally Subjected to systemic racism. Would you just explain that put that put that together for us, please? How do you reconcile your feelings? And how should the reader of res rules understand your feelings going through the book?
1: Well, the reality of the history most people don't study history or even realize the history of those two flags and where they came from but North America was going to be colonized by somebody eventually I mean uh, the Spanish weren't in fact in many ways the, the Spanish were worse towards indigenous people than the French and the English were. so I mean we, we our lands were going to be colonized by by some European empire, as they called them back then, the uh, british empire, the French empire. Imperialism was what those countries did huh? back back in the you know 1400s or whatever century it was. And fact is, um, First Nations people weren't viewed as human beings, and that's what justified uh, the taking of our land and, and the extermination and the wars and the, uh, all the bad things that the French and the English did to Native people in North America. You know, when you have a country like Canada and the U.S. and uh, still boasting about uh, being beacons of freedom and justice, while the the fact is those countries were based on systemic racism to uh, systemic racism and uh termination and assimilation and genocide to to residential schools and and boarding schools and broken treaties and even our veterans in World War II, the Canadian indigenous veterans the first nation people that that enlisted at a far greater greater number than any other race of people in World War I and World War II, weren't looked at as Canadian citizens. They didn't even have the right to vote. Yet, yet they still went and, and defended this country. And when they got back, they didn't even get the land scripts or the benefits that other non-Native veterans got. So the systemic racism even went into how First Nation veterans have been treated in this country.
0: So so we're learning, uh, I think a lot of people are maybe learning for the first time more about native heritage and culture and have over the last year, year plus. Uh, You write that native heritage and culture are a must to be integrated into business practice. And you remind that cultural responsibility is a critical part of a native business plan. You've been extremely successful economically. Now, with businesses at the Osage Indian Band, extremely successful, how how does how does heritage and culture fit into the business plan?
1: Of course, it isn't easy in in, in the modern context. Um, but just take forestry for example. the uh, The biggest problem with any any industry, um, like forestry or or gas or, or mining. Non-native companies want to maximize everything. They want to maximize returns. They want to maximize the annual cut. When we're involved in forestry, we don't want to maximize the cut. We want to keep farther away from creeks and streams. We don't want to maximize the annual allowable cut. We want to leave more trees standing. We just want to make enough to pay our bills and make a bit of a profit. But uh, the, the problem with with this with with, with capitalism. If they try and maximize everything, you, you, you don't need to maximize everything.
0: Yeah, I, I have so much. I've, I've put together so much from your book, so much information. I have so many notes here about what you, what you wrote that I feel are important to me to, to read and, and absorb. But you also write, and we talk a lot about politics in this country now. We've just come through a federal election, and we talked about that in the last hour. You write about politics on the res. And you write, politics are a blood sport compared to general political experiences in the rest of Canada. And because people know each other so very well and have generationally. So how does the council, how do you as chief work with the council um, with the reality of, of, of politics as a blood sport on the on the reserve, on the res, and at the same time manage to create this great economic success. How how do you put all of that together?
1: Well, in in any democracy, and that's what we're under right now, on the Indian reserves, you have to realize that, that our constituents never change. Um, there are no parties on the res, or there shouldn't be. I'm sure behind the scenes there's, you know, people band together but and um but it's but it's all about leadership it's all about um, building relations. you have to build relations you, there there's there's so many circles that you have to jump through, and I always tell the American mayor, the councils next to us, your guy's politics is easy compared to on the reserve politics because our constituents never change, and if somebody gets mad at you when they're when they're a teenager, they'll probably carry that into their. When, when they're an adult i mean are, are are their family so there's there's different dynamics around indian reserve elections on both sides of the border and um we have to look after our people from cradle to grave we're responsible for their livelihood for their standard of living from cradle to grave so our constituents are looked at and 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 I see more and more that Native people are calling their people citizens. I actually don't like that. They're not citizens. They're our people. You know, we're, we're starting to get so, I guess, brought into the non-Native way of, elect- of, of electioneering and phony politics and Facebook. I actually hate Facebook when it comes to elections. Um, I'm old school. You know, if you're going to say something to somebody, don't say it with your fingers. Say it with your voice. You have to talk to people. Face to face is the best way. If you can't do that, then voice to voice. Not this Facebook and not being keyboard keyboard warriors and being willing to say something to somebody that you wouldn't say to their face. You know, there's a lot of chicken shit that goes on when you when you when you're screening or or being a screen screenager. I heard that term a few months ago. Everybody's a screen screenager now. You just go to their screen, whether it's their phone or their computer. And they just mouth off all the time even about stuff that they don't even have a clue about you know it's just it's just gotten so bad now with with our with our people and even even society in general that everybody thinks you're an expert on everything and they just want to screen age all the time
0: the book is called the res so life on the res what do you want the reader to understand because you walk us through your life and and your experiences on the res to becoming the chief at a very young age, and what you uh, what you brought to running the council and operating the council as a business. So what do we need to know? What do you want people to understand? And then tell us please about the economic successes that you've been able to uh, put together, create for Soyuz.
1: Well, I'd I like most Canadians to understand that there's not a, there, wherever you live in Canada, if you're, if you're south of the 60th parallel, um, or north of the 49th, there's an Indian reserve not far from you. And the sad fact in this country, just like the U.S., still half the reserves or reservations are just like third world conditions. They're they're very poor. And, and there's many like OCUs that there aren't. I mean, we're, st- we're at OCUs, so We're getting involved in the business world, and that's where I spend most of my time. Time is um, trying to do joint ventures, uh, becoming economically strong, and that's what any country wants to do. I don't care. All G8 countries want to be economically strong, and that's the foundation of their success: is having good governance and having having an economy rather than having to, having to depend on foreign aid. But The sad fact is, is in one of the richest countries in the world, two of the richest countries in the world, many Indian reserves reservations still depend too much on foreign aid from, in this case, the federal government. And there's, a, and there's a lot of injustices around that. You know, broken treaties, Indian Reserve land ripoffs. I mean, when there was a band in B.C. that just got awarded over $100 million because of Indian Reserve land ripoffs, offs uh, and, and even if you've seen then, we, the uh, provincial federal government took two of our old reserves away, and we want one of them back. To me, reconciliation starts with the land, and it doesn't start with apologies or nice gestures, land acknowledgments. It starts with the land and the land in the the land injustices of the past. Getting our old reserves back and um, financial settlements. Because good words don't build houses or, or send my people to to school. Everything costs money, and as our old as my mom and grandma taught me, everything costs money from cradle to grave. So. We don't need any more good words or apologies. We need enough money to run our governance properly and to become independent. That's how Canada and America operates. And I I want the Canadian people to understand that land claims are just not not something that we pull out of the air. Now that we're able to hire lawyers, and if you can believe it or not, the Canadian government had a rule that we couldn't hire lawyers to defend ourselves uh, many decades ago. And that, and that again is a form of systemic racism. And now our people are, are winning Supreme Court of Canada court decisions. And we're starting to hold the uh, Canadian government in the, this country um, bringing our cases to justice, which is there's a long backlog of broken treaties and, and unsettled land claims in this country.
0: Yeah, and when we do, there's, you write about, the, uh, about Indian affairs in, uh, in the book, in Res Rules, the federal agency that has spent billions of dollars and doesn't get very much accomplished. I, I get the feeling they spend most of the money on themselves. Um, do you have a sense that there is going to be reconciliation, that there will be an improvement in the relationship—that there is actually going to be. Well, let's go back to the word reconciliation; that it will in fact happen.
1: In some cases, it is happening, as I mentioned. Some some bands are finally getting their their, their land claims settlements dealt with. It's taken a long, long time. We still have some outstanding issues here with the provincial and, and federal government, but our people shouldn't have to grow old at the, at the negotiating table. You know, our people shouldn't have to grow up poor and grow up with un- under underfunded programs. I mean, every program that the federal government, you have to realize there's still over $8 billion being spent on Aboriginal programming in this country. <laughs> and it's a ridiculous formula that they've kept for 100 years of 90 to 95% social spending and only 5% on economic development. I mean, it's a failed formula. I mean, what kind of country puts puts its economy last? Right. No successful country does.
0: If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.